I have a friend, uh, his name is Tom, and he's a pastor. He was a pastor, actually. He was retired now. He shared this story with me. Tom, when he was in uh, school, back in high school, he had a locker right next to Timothy, and Timothy was the uh, just the classic high school bully. Uh, Tom also sat next uh, in front of, uh, of Timothy the bully uh, in their 10-minute homeroom session at the start of each day, which was pretty bad, but he sat behind him in first-year algebra, which was even worse, and not just because it was algebra. He sat next to the same guy in fourth period band, which was the longest class of the day. It actually extended 12 minutes into lunch hour. And then he was usually a few steps away from him for marching band and for rehearsals. My my friend is a pastor now, and um, he uh, shared this story about what it's like, what it was like for him to survive high school with this bully who he seemed stuck next to in so many uh, places of his life. He said uh, to me that he... uh, in high school ended up with bruises in places where people don't have places. And I'm not even sure what he means by that, but it doesn't sound good. Well, back in high school, um, Tom was this uh, proverbial sort of 90-pound kid uh, who hadn't got that first growth spurt yet. He was five foot two inches at the start of the year. Um, whereas Timothy, um, he was six feet he was filling out. He had, you know, those big boy muscles. Uh, and Tom was scared to death of Timothy. Timothy always used to uh, get this smirk on his face right before he would pound Tom. And Tom uh, can still remember that look on his face. Well, Tom ended up getting a little taller, uh, and he ended up taking this uh, senior life-saving swim class at the Y, which included swimming half a mile uh, three times a week, which helped him, you know, to build up a little bit. So one afternoon uh, in February, uh, he says, the bully wouldn't let him get to his locker, so Tom lost his temper, and he threw the bully across the hallway. The next day, Tom went and found an empty locker uh, on the other side of school, and he moved his books over there, and pretty much for the rest of their high school career, uh, they didn't talk. Skip to 1997. It's uh, their 20th high school reunion, and Tom, if you can imagine, he's he's not going to go. He's not After the experience he had, why would he? But a friend talks him into going to their 20th high school reunion, um, and he was only going to stay long enough to get into the picture, but then another friend talked him into standing in line for food. He did drive three hours to get there, so why not? Might as well get some food. And while he was in line, he looks up and walks over uh, Timothy, that same guy. He still uh, was a head uh, taller than him, and he had that smirk on his face. So Timothy walks up. He puts his arm around Tom so he couldn't get away, and he says, Tom, I just have to know something. Are you still a Christian? And uh, he says, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, and he's just waiting for it all to start again, and he's taken right back to high school. And the guy says, are you still a man of the cloth? Which is a old school way of talking about somebody who's a pastor. And he says, yeah, yeah. And he's just wondering when it, you know, what, where he's getting to. And he says, good, he said, because I drove here from Seattle to tell you that I've been following Jesus for five years now. And he sent me here to ask for your forgiveness for the terrible things that I did to you in school. And they locked eyes. And Timothy's eyes began to well up and Tom could see it. His eyes become full of tears. And he said, can you forgive me for the hurt and the shame and all the mean stuff 
that I put you through. Of course, um, Tom forgave him. In fact, he, he told me that he, he had forgiven him years before, you know, that he had found forgiveness before the guy had even asked for it. Well, Timothy went on and he shared about how he found Christ when he was in prison, why he went to prison. Turned out he was pretty, you know, he, he'd done some things um, and how his life has changed since he got out. Uh, later that night, he even, uh, Tom got to meet Timothy's wife and she said, you know, he, for the last six months, this is the only thing he's talked about. He's talked about how he's going to drive from Seattle to the 20th high school reunion with the one hope that he would find you and hopefully be able to make amends. Tom goes on to tell me that they were, uh, that they're still friends. Tom says that Timothy's got a daughter who's starting college now and that he and uh, uh, his wife are celebrating their 30, 35th anniversary and that their 45 year class reunion is next week or next year. And he plans to be there and he hopes to see his friend. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been talking about what it means to forgive. Today, I want to talk about what it means to ask for forgiveness. And we've been talking about how forgiveness is, is a journey. And today, uh, you're going to see that asking for forgiveness can be a journey too. And it might be a hard and difficult journey that might take you down some crazy places like a road trip from Seattle to Ohio just so you can find someone uh, and apologize and ask for their forgiveness. There are a lot of great passages that uh, in Scripture that talk about seeking forgiveness. I'm reminded of Matthew 18, a passage we've referenced a few times in this series. Uh, it's really kind of one of the best textbooks for handling conflict in our lives. So I encourage you to, to read the whole thing. But it talks about how when you've been hurt by one another, we should go and find and seek reconciliation. This, this passage, along with a passage in Matthew chapter 5, suggests a certain urgency to forgiveness. When you, when you realize that there's a rift in the relationship, you should go and seek amends. It's, it's really as quickly as you can. That's how it's worded. Um, a few months ago, um, Jeremy God, who's a part of our church, actually serves on our board, preached on this passage and on forgiveness in particular. He asked this really simple question in the sermon, which I found really interesting. He says, when there is hurt, when somebody's been hurt, who should initiate forgiveness? Who should start it? The person who got hurt or the person who did the hurting? And his answer in the sermon was simply, yes. <laughs> Both, you know, whatever. He said this in the sermon, uh, a, a quote, um, in God's economy in the here and now, I sense from these verses that the ideal would be for the one who gave hurt and the one who was hurt to race so fast to come together to bring healing and forgiveness to the relationship that they nearly smack into one another in the haste, that they value the gift of the relationship, that they cannot leave it in the state of deterioration as much as it depends on on them. They, they can't leave it in a state of deterioration as much as it depends on them. In ideal situations, and once again, ideal situations, we should value the relationships we're in so much that we're running towards each other in hopes of reconciliation. Of course, it's not always easy uh, and it's not always ideal. And we talked extensively about that last week, but we're going to try to grow towards this. I think we all want to be in relationships where this is valued. That we're married to someone whose relationship means so much to us that when hurt is done, we are both eager to make amends. That we have friendships or we're in small groups or we have mentors or even work colleagues that, that this is the case. That we value the relationship so much that 
we run towards reconciliation. Now, the reality is we don't always get to choose our family or our parents. We don't even always really have much say in who we work for sometimes or who we work with. And so in some cases, this might not be the option. But we all want, I think, to be in relationships that, that, that where the relationship is more valuable than the hurt that was caused. And so we run towards reconciliation. So when hurt is caused, and we're the ones to blame, specifically today, that's what we're going to talk about, what does it mean to ask for forgiveness? How do we do it? Well, it's one of those things that I think is really pretty easy to understand, but sometimes really hard to do. Recently saw on Facebook some of really kind of the best advice that you can get for asking for forgiveness. It's from Heather Gott, who happens to be married to Jeremy Gott. So our sermon today is brought to you by the Gott family. Um, and uh, they, ha- they obviously have a lot of wisdom when it comes to uh, what it means to be in a healthy relationship. So uh, they posted this. Uh, she, she posted this. She said, when my boys were little, I told her I was going to steal this, by the way, so I hope she's not surprised. She says, when, I, when my boys were little, I had uh, them use a four-part apology when one of them hurt someone. I just think this is beautiful. You should memorize this. You should copy and paste it. Uh, We'll throw it up in the chat. It says, I'm sorry I did, and then specific action. I can see that it hurt you in X specific way. If I were in your shoes, I would feel X way. And what can I do to make it right? Friends, if you have a child, if you have a a significant other, if you have a close friend, this is a formula you need to memorize. This is fantastic. She goes on to say that if they tried to shift blame, if they tried to deflect, if minimize or play the victim, we started all over. (laughs) And And then she says, and I love this, I explained that owning their actions was a really important part of growing up. See, that's pretty simple but not particularly easy. It takes a willingness to um, lay aside our ego, our desire to justify ourselves, our pride, our defensiveness. But I agree with Heather and Jeremy. I think we should run towards reconciliation. And when possible, we should own our, when, when possible, we should run towards reconciliation and we should always own our actions. And it's, owning our actions is a really important part of growing up. In fact, it one, might be one of the most important lessons in this, in this, this whole talk. To effectively ask for forgiveness, we need to own our actions and their impact on others. We, we have to take responsibility. So to explore what that means and what the scriptures have to say about that, we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament. When God was uh, forming the nation of Israel, God uh, was building this new kind of community. And God did this by laying out just a whole bunch of set of rules uh, as kind of a foundation for what this community would be all about. I want to look at one of those uh, sort of old, uh, ancient Old Testament rules that while it might not apply to every situation, uh, it holds a really deeper principle that I think are some deeper principles that are worth considering. So if you can, jump to the book of Numbers, great Old Testament book. Uh, It's found in the early part of the Old Testament. It's called the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers, and we're going to go specifically to chapter 5. Now, there is a very similar passage in Leviticus 6, similar but different in some ways. If you really want to dig deep on this, you can compare and contrast the two. But today, we're just going to spend our time in Numbers chapter 5, starting with verse uh, 5. So Numbers Numbers 5.5. God is telling Moses, who's the leader at the time, how this new community should operate. And here's what God says. Verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty. 
and must confess the sin they have committed. I'm going to spend a couple moments with this, uh, these uh, a couple of verses here. Um, first off, the NIV words it like this, anyone who wrongs another in any way. But if you have the NIV, you can also look at the footnote uh, that, that comes with most versions of the NIV. And you can see in the Hebrew can also be translated like this. It can say uh, to anyone who commits any wrong common to humankind. In other words, it's talking about all of the ways we typically hurt each other. All of the ways that any, any woman or man, all of the ways that are typical for humankind that we might wrong one another. So the first basic assumption in God's new community, God's building this new community, it's supposed to represent, you know, God, heaven on earth, and God's building this new community. And the first assumption in this law is that you will end up hurting one another. That's the basic assumption of the law. It's going to happen. You could almost read it when any man or woman hurts or wrongs another. If you're trying to live your entire life avoiding conflict, you can't. You're going to mess up. It's going to happen. So can we just accept that? Let's just, it's going to happen. You're going to mess up. You're going to hurt somebody. You're going to wrong somebody. I remember once I was chatting with my friend, uh, Keith Wasserman from Athens, Ohio, fantastic, wise uh, leader in, uh, in, in, the, in the church. He runs a, a ministry for those who experience homelessness in Athens County, in that area. And he's a bit of an expert on biblical hospitality and what it means to be in community. He said once to me that uh, he kind of offered this critique of our church, but really just church in general. He said that there are people who've been going to church their entire lives. And he actually listed a couple people as examples. They, they've sat next to each other their entire lives. They, they've worshiped next to each other. They, they know each other's names. They maybe even know their kids and grandkids' name. Maybe even attended a few classes together or have gone on a trip together or have done social events together. They've chatted, you know, coffee before the service. But even though they've been next to each other or in the proximity of one another for most of their life, they have never been in a relationship with each other that's deep enough to produce real conflict. They'll never actually get upset with each other. They'll never really uh, need to forgive each other. I, I can't, this was such an interesting idea. And it's challenged me ever since he said it, because I live most of my life like, if you avoid conflict, I've, I've always assumed that's a good thing. But he's really challenging that. He says, you could spend your whole life being in church and never have a relationship deep enough with other people that you would actually need to learn how to ask for forgiveness because you never got close enough to hurt them. Friends, that's not the community God set out to build. God is building a community where we will be close enough to one another, where wrongs will be done, misunderstandings will happen, we'll get frustrated, we might even get angry. We can't avoid conflict. We've got to learn forgiveness because that's the community we're trying to build. So conflict's going to happen. We don't want it to happen. We, we want to do our best to avoid it. But, but even the most, hear me out, even the most godly, wise, mature, emotionally intelligent people I know still get into arguments with their spouse. It happens. So instead of avoiding conflict, let's lean into forgiveness. Here's what it says next. Uh, the, going back to the passage, it, it says, when we hurt others, we, it, we are being unfaithful to God. Now, in this series, we're talking about forgiveness and how it works between one another. Uh, but we have to pause. And I just want to say that, that this impacts God, too. 
God's involved in all of this. God identifies so much with us. We, we're all created in God's image and God identifies so much with humans that, that even Jesus says that if you give someone something to drink, it's like you're giving Jesus something to drink. And what God, I think, is saying here is that even when you hurt somebody, it's as if you are hurting God. You are being unfaithful to God when you're unfaithful to others. Now, we could spend days digging out uh, and understanding that principle. I'm going to leave it there for now so we can talk about what it means to mend things between each other. Here's what it says. Uh, the, the verse seven goes on to say, when they hurt each other and they're unfaithful to God, they must confess the sin they have committed. Here's how we make it right. We're going to wrong people, but here's how we make it right. We confess. The Hebrew word here means to throw. Uh, it's the idea that you've been, you know, hiding something or you've been holding something and you, you toss it out in the open for people to see. To confess is to uncover. You take responsibility for what you've done. But here's what I love about this passage. It doesn't stop there. That, that much, I think, we, we've seen other places. You know, you, you confess your sins. This is a phrase that you'll hear in the church. But, but the Old Testament doesn't stop there. It goes on. First, you confess, but we're not done yet. The rest of verse 7 says this. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the person they have wronged. Here's what's interesting. When you go back to the beginning, the first set of laws and the rules that, that guide the nation of Israel, and while these laws are built on and expanded on and fully realized in the person and teaching of Jesus, they, they're a good foundation. They, they're a good starting point. They get, we get to see how things started, what, what God kind of moving people in a particular direction. When it comes to making things right between neighbors in all of the ways that we hurt one another, just in general, all the typical wrongs that we commit to one another, it doesn't really say, well, what you need to do is say, I'm sorry. So many times that's, that's all we say. But that's not what the Bible would have us do. Here's what the Bible says. First, confess, which means lay out what you did wrong, which is a lot harder than saying I'm sorry. And second, we have to make it right. Full restitution. 100% of what you took. No, in fact, it says start with 100% of what you took and then add 20% to it and get, you know, more than full restitution. If, if you stole $100 from your neighbor, you owe them 120. You have to go above and beyond to make it right. When you, what you do to make it right, in other words, has to be bigger and better than what you did that first caused harm. And not just because you're trying to win the other person over. It's, it's not some kind of trick to win them back. This passage is crazy. about. Uh, this is what I love about this passage. You read on, continue in verse 7 into verse 8. It says this. It says, give it all to the person that, that they have wronged, the person they have wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest. So, first, if possible you pay restitution to the person you hurt. If they aren't around anymore, you give it to a close family member. If they aren't around anymore, not, not even a single close family member is left, or you can't find them or whatever, then you give it to the priest. Now, this is crazy. Because it tells us something that's really important to this, in this Old Testament law, a principle that we can pull out. The law wasn't just about helping the person who was hurt or trying to win them over, 
or, 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 or trying to get back in their good graces. We know it wasn't about that because the person who did wrong has to give it up even if he can't give it back. You see, if it was all about just kind of making things right for the person who was wrong, then, then the law would be written like this. It would say, hey, go find the person that you, that you hurt. Go find them and uh, give back 120% what you took. And if you can't give it back to them, then, you know, if you also hurt their family, give it back to them. And if not, don't worry about it. But that's not what this law says. It says, give it to them. If not them, their family. If not them, the priest. In other words, no matter what the situation, you don't get to keep it. No matter the circumstances, they don't get to keep what they gained from the wrong that they caused. Even if they can't give it back, they have to still give it up. And here's why. Because by giving it up, making a sacrifice, doing something that cost you, they themselves are able to start to heal from the wrong that they caused. Giving it up, even if they can't give it back, is essential to their own healing. Best example of this is what uh, is what we see in the person of Zacchaeus. Um, when Jesus was visiting Jericho, this was years, years after this, you know, generations after this law was written. Jesus is in Jericho, uh, walking the earth. He encounters this guy by the name of Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. Now, this guy was a bully. Uh, he was short, but he was rich, powerful. He was a bully, and he cheated tons of people out of money. And everyone hated him. But Jesus decides to get lunch with him, which is what Jesus did. That's why he became known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, is he he would go hang out with the bad guys. Well, but when Jesus met, when Zacchaeus met Jesus and has lunch with him, his life has changed, which also typically happens when you sit down long enough for a meal with Jesus. God's grace opened up his heart and he turned his life around. Uh, and with this changed heart, he wants to make right the things that he all of those people that he wronged. But he doesn't just ask for forgiveness from the people he cheated. He doesn't give this really great speech about how it was wrong and he words it just right. That wasn't even part of the conversation. No, he declared that he would give back what he took. Now, according to numbers in Leviticus, he should give back 120% of what he took. Uh, here's what I took. I'll add 20% to it. Here you go. Now we're good. But look what Zach does. Uh, 19 verse 8, it says this. He stands up. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So first, he gives up half of everything he owns. Everything that was rightfully his, he gives it away. That's what we call generosity. Second, he gives back to anyone he's cheated. A significant amount to anyone he's cheated. He, he, if he's wronged someone, he makes it right. This is what we call justice. But instead of just giving 120% like the law required, he gives back 400%, four times what he took. And you know what Jesus says right after he makes this declaration? Verse 9, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Here's the thing. Zach, at this moment, hadn't really given anything up. He hadn't tracked down those people. He would have been able to track down those people. He was a tax collector. He has very good records. If anyone can track down somebody and make things right, it's the IRS. So he knew how to track people, but he hadn't done it yet. He's just saying he is. He's declaring that he, he's going to do this. He's, but he's taking these steps. Jesus, and as he declares it, Jesus announces that this is what salvation looks like. Something about the act of making it right 
changes us, heals us, saves us. It wasn't just about how he was going to help the people he had wronged. The actual act of doing it was what saves him. His wholeness was tied up in his willingness to take action. Imagine for a second if you were to do this. I'm serious. Imagine. First, imagine right now you gave half of everything you owned. I'm not saying you should. Jesus might. He multiple times did challenge people to do that. I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm just saying imagine. Just pretend. What would it look like for you to give half of everything you own? How does that feel? Now imagine going back and somehow... Uh, maybe you don't have as good of records as a tax collector, so you don't know how to track everyone down, but go back. If you could make it right with all the things you've done to hurt people, you could just go back and settle all those scores four times what you, what you did. Imagine if that was possible. How does that feel? Does it feel like salvation to you? Does it feel like something worse? When I was thinking about this earlier, there's some pretty nasty triggers going off. It felt a little bit like dying inside. Give up half of everything I owe. Is that how you feel? A little bit of fear? A little bit of anxiety? Does it feel like salvation or does it have more of like the stink of death? Well, the truth is, according to Jesus, the one who said you have to lay down your life in order to gain it, he might argue that those things aren't so different. In fact, the feeling of admitting you're wrong and declaring that to the person you hurt it's gonna it's what's necessary to save a relationship that's guaranteed but it often feels a little bit like dying now all this is written in ancient laws and happened thousands of years ago and most of these examples have to do with money which is pretty clean cut you steal from somebody a certain amount and you got to give it back a certain amount and all of that makes sense but but we know that not every hurt involves money not every hurt is this clean cut what does it mean to 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 pay restitution if the hurts are emotional or spiritual. So I want to bring it into the present. What's the bigger principle that we can learn here? How can we apply it? And here's what I think. It's very simple, but hard to live out. Asking for forgiveness isn't about asking for forgiveness as much as it's about admitting what you've done wrong and having at the bare minimum a desire to make it right. Even if you can't make it right, having at least at the bare minimum the desire to make it right. No one understands this principle better than AA. There are uh, probably few organizations, including the church with a capital C, there are few organizations that have done more for teaching people how to ask for forgiveness than AA. AA, of course, is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a, they use a 12-step program, uh, similar to many other 12-step uh, programs. And a couple of those 12 steps have to do specifically with making amends. Step eight is one of those. Step eight says this. Make a list of all persons we had harmed uh, and become willing to make amends to them all. So one of the process of recovery for somebody who's going through Alcoholics Anonymous, I would argue we're all going through recovery of some sort, but somebody who's in this particular process is to look back and think of everyone they've harmed and then take time to become willing to make amends to them, which then leads us to step nine. When you're ready, go to step nine. Make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. This might be the best advice 
on what it means to ask for forgiveness. Make direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. In other words, asking forgiveness, asking for forgiveness is about taking action, not just saying words. Here's how they explain it in what they call the big book, which is kind of like a, a breakdown of, of what, a, what the 12 steps are all about. Uh, here's a quote from it. It says, think of amends as actions taken that demonstrate your new life of recovery, whereas apologies are basically words. I love that. They're like, it's about the action, not just the words. When you make amends, you acknowledge and you align your values to your actions by admitting your wrongdoing and then living differently, living by these new principles. They go on to explain that really the first step to making amends is is showing up to these uh, AA meetings. What they mean by that is this. When you show up to an AA meeting, you're, you're, you're recognizing that you have a problem, that you've made mistakes, that you need help, and that you're taking steps to get that help. So when someone is in recovery and is able to say to a loved one, I'm, I need help, and I'm getting help, I, I've made mistakes, and I'm doing these steps, the, that's the first step to making amends. Because they aren't just apologizing and then continuing their life making the same mistakes. No, they're admitting that they are wrong. And, they're, and then they share what they're willing to do about it. In other words, sometimes making amends isn't about paying something back. Sometimes it's showing you're willing to change. In other words, sometimes you give the restitution uh, to the person and sometimes you give it to the priest. Sometimes you pay it back and sometimes you pay it forward with a changed life. Either way, you're taking action that will change you. And that's the point. When we apologize and we've... Uh, if we apologize and we've avoided saying anything about what we did wrong and, and we've done nothing to kind of avoid that in the future, we've missed the point. And while I would still encourage the person to forgive, uh, depending on the offense, I wouldn't advise them to necessarily remain in the relationship because apologies without confession or change is just another form of abuse. That's why the Bible makes these things so crystal clear. If you hurt a neighbor in all the typical ways we hurt our neighbors, you need to confess, own up to what you did wrong. You have to take responsibility. You can't be defensive. You can't pretend like it didn't matter. You have to confess, and you got to at least have a desire to make it right. You might not be able to make it right, but you have to have a heart, whether it's paying back or paying forward with a changed life. So let me get real for a second. A few years ago, back in Athens, our parent church did a sermon series on 12 steps. We encouraged everyone to go through the steps. And um, uh, so I walked through them with everyone else. And I I did step eight. I I made a list of people I've harmed in the past. Now, I didn't take the time to really become willing to make those. I don't even know what that looks like. Um, and, and here's the thing with AA uh, or the 12 steps. When you do this in, in, in a typical uh, anonymous group, you, you have a sponsor. It's kind of like a mentor. And you have someone who's walking along with you in the journey. And honestly, I think that's what it takes. It, it doesn't work as a sermon series uh, by itself unless you're doing the 12 steps with someone who's familiar with the 12 steps. But they are powerful. If you're not familiar with them, I encourage you to at least read them. And really... 
this goes back to this idea that you, you got to do this journey with somebody, whether it's a, a wise friend, a mentor, a counselor, a pastor. Um, and, and if that's you, if you're on this journey of some sort and you're like, what does it mean for me to, to take the next step towards forgiveness? Um, reach out to us. We'd love to, I'd love to be that person. I'd love to help you find a counselor if that's needed, whatever. Um, but I didn't have that. So no accountability, no direction. So when it came to step eight, where, uh, you go and you make amends to people, I got this list of people I've hurt in my past. This is, this is tough work, friends. I froze. And it took two years later, I finally reached out to my childhood friend who I'd done some stuff that I just really regretted, and I attempted to make amends. Um, but I didn't even talk to him face-to-face. I didn't drive across country to try to find him. Uh, I reached out on Facebook Messenger and Facebooked him. I don't know if that's the best thing. I don't know. I don't know. In fact, there's other people that were on my list that I haven't reached out to yet. Um, some I'm not sure how to reach out to. Others, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready because even though I hurt them, they hurt me too. And it's messy and it was a long time ago and I'm still figuring it out. So I say all that to say, I'm still learning to practice what I preach. And, and I honestly believe in God's grace that God's grace is big enough for the lack of mine. God's grace is big enough for the ways in which my grace isn't. And, and I do, and I rest in God's grace, but, but I commit to keep taking steps towards forgiveness, both to those that I've wronged and to those who wrong me. I, it might take a lot of steps. I might take a few breaks along the path. It might take years to get there, but I'm not leaving the path. I plan on spending my, the rest of my life on this journey. I commit to stay on the path and to trust the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what I want to invite you to do as well. You don't have to get it all right, but will you commit to walk together towards what we know is right, towards generosity, towards justice, towards humility and forgiveness, towards making amends, finding healing, If we can get this down, if if forgiveness and healing and making, if we can get closer to getting this right, then I, I mean, this is the ticket. This is the key that unlocks all the other doors. This is where freedom is found. So I encourage you, do not grow weary. I, I, and I invite you today, will you take steps today towards forgiveness today? Will you take steps towards forgiveness? You might not arrive today. You might not finish the journey tomorrow. But today and every day, will you take steps towards forgiving those that you need to forgive and towards seeking forgiveness from those you need to seek? That we might be the community of God, not because we avoided conflict, but because we learned from God what it means to truly love one another. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. Lord, we know that this is hard stuff that you call us to. That encounters with you result in half of our wealth going out the door to to help the poor. And we can't always explain that. But somewhere in there, we are saved. Like we are healed and we are made whole in the process of giving up. That you call us to do crazy things, to make things right, to seek forgiveness. There's no guarantee that people will even forgive us when we're wrong, but you, you call us to do what we can as long as it's not going to hurt other people. You, you call us to bold action. So Holy Spirit, come and direct us. Calm our nerves. Show us what this means for today. Show us what that next step is. And be with us. We ask all of this. In your name.
Amen. Let's uh, join in this closing song.